Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden and Sam Chamlin. Hello, podcast. I've finally finished editing all of the Ecotones of the Spirit pods, so welcome to our final installment of our summer series. We hope they've been a welcome companion to your summer, planting, watering, harvesting, proclaiming, and dreaming about a more sustainable world. As we come to the end of the summer and the end of this series, it seemed appropriate that we would take our final podcast to reflect on the week that was Ecotones with our favorite recurring guest, Wilson Dickinson. If you've been listening, he needs no introduction, but he is the director of the Green Good News and teaches theology and is the director of the Doctor of Ministry and Continuing Education programs at Lexington Theological Seminary. He works with churches, colleges, and seminaries on issues of food justice, sustainability, and joyful living in the scriptures, new forms of church and discipleship, and spiritual practices. And yes, this pod gets a little punchy at times. It was the end of the week after all, but it was a fabulous ending to a life-changing week. We hope it brings you some joy as well. So it's Thursday afternoon at Ecotones, and we're all a little tired and a little punchy, but we are glad to be having a conversation with our good friend, Wilson Dickinson, and um, being able to reflect together um, on this week of conversations. Yeah, Wilson and I met last year. We went on a couple hikes together that involved stories that a couple of our listeners will know. I'm not sure we really want to tell some of those stories, but nevertheless, um, the idea you know, that we've been able to participate, the three of us have been able to participate in wake events and have been, um, have been poured into by the um, sort of the contemplative ecology that often happens in this space. Um, it seemed like we could just have a conversation here at the end and say, hey, here's what happened and here's what we're thinking about and here's, here's where things are going. So Wilson, it's really great to see you again. I'm so glad you're here this week and thanks for the laughs and for the meals and everything we shared together this week thus far. It's, it's been great. I mean, and this kind of wake event at Warren Wilson really is unique among conferences and seminars, but I think it really kind of matches the spirit of the, the movement. So Yeah. So what makes it unique? I mean, you're a seminary professor, so living in academia, going around to these things is probably part of your job description. So what is it particularly about being here that stands out? Well, the space kind of is, is part of it. You know, so Warren Wilson's nestled in the mountains, there's trees around. I actually have to shut my windows in the morning because the birds are so loud. They so wake me loud. up. <laughs> That's First different morning, than like a that. conference hotel. Yeah. Really? Uh, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the wise insight. <laughs> um, but also, I guess it's there is a fair amount of presentation that's done in the morning, but that presentation is always um, digested communally. Mm. Right, and so, and 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 I think so. I think there is a certain the standard presentation of, of a kind of expert, mm-hmm. but then there there are really are mechanisms for kind of gleaning the collective wisdom, um, and then in the afternoon there's it's there's even more of a feeling of praxis as it's focused on workshops, um, and then kind of staying together in a space that feels like a retreat center or a church camp in a college dorm, it brings out a different part of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's really important because oftentimes, like, so I think like the pedagogy of the climate movement, for example, is usually pretty broken. Like I've gone to a lot of climate stuff and there's talking heads and they get up and they usually present, you know, something that's, 
complex, shows their expertise, mm -hmm. and how the world is falling apart. Um, and then they're very short on what do we do about this. You know, they usually go from giant systems to like individual consumption, yeah. which is absurd. Um, but then also, there, there is not a lot of intentionality that's put into how, how do you, you've brought all these amazing people together. And so you're going to ask them to sit in a room and listen and then go home mm. or hope that it, it magically happens, mm -hmm. that they have the right conversation over dinner and they don't know each other and aren't comfortable with each other. Right? So I think, but I think one of the things that makes this different is, is like place matches form, matches content. And so you, you kind of, you get to know other people, but also people, I guess, out of that comfort and out of their passion share a lot. Like I, I come away from here learning some from the presenters. I mean, the presenters are great, yeah. but mostly learning from, you know, yeah. other people here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, something I've been really struck by is any gathering that Fred has curated and that, that I've been to is the people in the room. I'm just always, I'm blown away. I mean, people are coming from different faith backgrounds, different vocational backgrounds, different parts of the country indigenous people of color, different um, expertise. I mean, I've talked to someone in public health and then a priest, <laughs> and that it's like, I think we often can talk about intersectionality and we can talk about the interconnected web and we can talk about how, you know, to solve these various struggles in the world that we need to bring together different expertise, but it's still often just all the pastors are over here talking about it and the scientists are talking about it here and the healthcare professionals are here. And that there's enough that brings us together that in, you know, there's, there's something that is, is convening the conversation, but that there is such a beautiful variety of people in the conversations. Um, just feels, I don't know, that feels very unique. I wish it was not as unique as it is, but it, yeah. But it is, yeah. But it's unique, yeah. yeah it is. Um, yeah, hearing you talk, Wilson, I was just thinking about community gardening. Um, cause I, I done a bunch of it, you know, and I have one now that I work on where, you know, you have kind of what you said with these climate conferences is like, you have a bunch of people who come in, they adopt plots and they're just kind of focused on what they're doing. And we talk about like, Oh, we have a community garden. There's lots of different people who are gardening, yeah. but they're not gardening with each other. Yeah. <laughs> like they are hyper-focused on what they're doing and they're, and, and one of the things that I've always said is community gardens have to be building community or else they're not actually a community garden. They're just gardens that are next to each other. Yeah. And that is one of the things that I see played out in this event is that we're not just, we're all serving our communities and that way it feels like a community garden, but it genuinely is building community. Mm -hmm. um, and we, and we are building those bridges across. And, and again, the presenters are great. And I mean, every one of them has poured something into my life. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, the people that are sustaining me are not the speakers. It's the relationships and the people that I'm calling and I'm jumping on Zoom calls with and I get to interview and all that kind of stuff. And so, and they are people who otherwise I would not talk to. Yeah. Um, there's just not a lot of rooms where straight white farmers like me end up in rooms with indigenous people. Like that just doesn't happen a lot, at least in my corner of the world. Um, that doesn't happen. And so it's such a sacred space. Um, I know that gets used a lot, but I mean, it's sacred in that it is... It is wholly unique to me, and so um, and so I'm grateful for the ways that everybody pours into this space, and they all come to do work. Like that's the other thing. Like we all genuinely come to offer something, and we all take something away. So I'm really grateful for that. Well, and I, I'm just, I'm so grateful also that even the speakers will sit down and have oh yeah. Lunch. I mean, like 
we've had some wonderful conversations with the people who are in the leadership too. So it's also, I think, been to conferences where you see them up on there on the stage and then they disappear. And I get that as an introvert. And if I was doing a lot of speaking, I might oh, be yeah. the same. But like, there's a spirit of mutuality in these rooms that. Um, so without kind of going into sort of a long thing, um, you know, tell us a little. Well, you know. Tell us why you continue to show up in this space. Like, what is it? Like, what is your connection um, in terms of food, faith, climate that keeps bringing you back to these conversations, whether it's here or elsewhere? Um, it, it's it's kind of a smorgasbord of things, really. Um, one of the things I was thinking about that's maybe analogous to this this kind of intersectional space with all these different disciplines made me think of like Pauline communities mm-hmm. right, where you had these strange gatherings of people that were doing this, I was going to say textual work. I mean, I don't know how textual it is when most of the people are probably illiterate, but there's, there's this deep sense of scripture, mm-hmm. right? That, that kind of work and, and of teaching and preaching and discussion that's going on. There's also all this food and eating, mm-hmm. you know, which is not like bought, bought from the grocery store, but you know, these are, Agrarian cultures, even though Paul's mostly in cities, I mean, but it's, so, so I mean, so food has a significance that's tied to the earth, that's tied to their work, that even if not even if not directly, um, and then they have all these different kind of religious practices and, and forms of connecting. And one of the things that shows up clearly in the Gospels is not all those people were the same, right? Yeah. And so there's there's this oftentimes like a con- contentious intersectionality that's happening, but also something that's kind of that's different and radical. Um, and so anyway, I, I see those Pauline communities as these amazing little social experiments that had the potential to change the world, bring about a new creation. I mean, that was their vision. Um, and so I see something similar here. I see something similar throughout the food movement. Um, and it's so one of the things that connects me to food and faith is a deep concern for climate change and a deep concern for the care of creation. Um, but that is, that for me is completely interwoven with uh, a deep desire and love of Christian community and of intimacy felt in community and also uh, concern with issues of justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I mean, one of the things that I think is woven together, not just in this conference, but throughout the food movement, and I know there's all kinds of other experiments in all kinds of other areas, but I mean, this is the one that I really plug into, um, is just the way those little social experiments, like a community garden, like a dinner church, like a farm church, um, the way that they embody this profound alternative to the ways of empire in our time. Um, and I think the way that they hold the seeds for, for change. Mm-hmm. So how do, what are some of the theological constructs or stories that ground you in this movement? Well, I mean, I guess at the, the center of theological reflection, food and faith, it's often communion comes up. Um, but kind of looking at it from this communal lens, looking at it from this lens of justice and climate, um, it, it really kind of brings out, again, this Pauline sense of communion that is not just a right that happens in the special religious place, in the special religious building, with the special religious people. Um, but it's this kind of 
orienting center um, of community and of creation. All right, so communion then kind of in this world of food and faith uh, unfolds into fellowship in the koinonia, you know, as you know, what it's doing in, in the Bible. Um, and, and I guess, I, I mean, I hesitated when, when you asked me that question because you know, I, I feel like as much as I feel like that theology brings this beautiful and helpful moral imagination to issues of, of food and community injustice, that food and community injustice have really transformed what I even think theology is. Interesting. Right. So I mean, and so I guess part of my hesitation was in like traditional systematic theology, you have all these like you know, the loci of like Christology or you know salvation, et cetera, et cetera. And I really feel like that even what theology is and how it's done um, has for me been rewritten through interactions with. Uh, food movement, and with social justice movements. So how would you define theology now, or, what, or what's the story that, that, that right. theology is now? I mean, what's your before and after, you know, before encountering food and faith movement and now? Well, it was, it was already kind of on a trajectory where, so this, this weird thing happened to, to theology where it got cooped up in the university for a little while, and, you know, it's a complicated story, a cartoon version of it. You know, it's the University of Berlin, early 19th century. This weird thing happens to theology. It starts to be something that professors do. Yeah. Um, and, and I've actually never really felt connected to that version of, of theology. Um, and, I've, and, I've, and I feel not as connected either with the version of theology that comes out of bishops. Um, I guess my background is actually in philosophy, so I'm, I'm really interested in these ancient philosophical traditions that were a way of life. Mm -hmm. It's complete and total. And so even the intellectual life is a, a spiritual exercise. Mm -hmm. And it's all about kind of finding this transformation to live within wisdom. Um, and so I think that the kind of incarnational, embodied, communal aspects of food and the food movement and of justice movements um, really have made those ancient traditions make significantly more sense to me. But those ancient traditions have been helpful in the food movement or for thinking about food injustice because they're bringing in a different set of values. Mm -hmm. you know, I, and they're, they're bringing in kind of a, a different set of values and practices from the values and practices that you know, educated secular managers are given. Hmm. You know? yeah. And so for both of you, I'd wonder, um, what are sort of those, what is a embodied practice or a point of praxis that maybe you've taken away either from this gathering or recently? Kind of like where are, where are you both kind of thinking about that? What was you just like turning on interviewing the other host? <laughs> this is a conversation. We started See, I thought that was being yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah it was good. <laughs> You want me to go first? Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, so something I was really struck by is um, Victoria from Wild Church, um, Wild Church Movement, shared in her podcast interview that she starts off the Wild Church gatherings with this idea of invoking place, and so she's led Wild Church um, gathering here at the conference, and 
So I asked if she would be willing to bring that invocation to our worship this morning, which she did, and it was beautiful. And what, the thing that really struck me, because I was in charge of leading worship, and at first I thought, like, oh, I'll do that thing that she said. And then I suddenly went, I can't do that thing for this place because I don't know who the peoples are. I don't know the watershed. I don't know the names of the plants. I don't know the names of the animals. Like, it took research for her to be able to come to this place and be able to say, we are standing on the soil where these indigenous people were, where slaves were held, where this, and naming the poplars and the certain kind of bird that I've forgotten the name of. <laughs> um, and so I was just really struck by the work that it takes to even be able to be aware of the place that we're in. And um, this morning we had an opportunity to reflect on what's like one tangible thing you're gonna do. And I'm in the middle of transition. By the time this is aired, I will live in Western Massachusetts. And I got overwhelmed by thinking of like some big, you know, my, my to-do list is long enough. I didn't want to be like, I'll figure out my whole whatever. It was like, what I need to do is when I get to this new place, which I hope to live for at least three years, I want to take on as a spiritual practice to find out about the watershed. I want to get the field naturalist books and learn about what are the plants and the animals in this new area. I want to find out about the food shed and take the time to not just figure out where the grocery stores are, but really like find out who is farming and, and who are they, and not just the first one I run into, but like really take the time to do the research and to research it as a spiritual practice. That feels like the thing that I've gotten from this week that's different. Like I've done that kind of community mapping before and it's been really important. And um, I think that the, the layer that I am taking away is as a responsible spiritual practice or as a, um, an intentional spiritual practice to really observe the the natural world and the human world that are in this new place that I'm entering into and to enter into it with that kind of intentionality. I guess, I mean, one of the, I mean, a few things come to mind. One that feels the newest, you know, because oftentimes this stuff is a reminder and <laughs> just, yeah. it's been my whole life learning the same lesson over and over again. Um, but one is, I think that the work of mourning and grief might be something that is communal and embodied, and I, and I well and I don't I don't know if I had quite realized that before. You know, oftentimes I kind of thought like grief is something I need to, I need to be doing, or need to let myself feel, and maybe somebody else can help me with that. But I haven't thought about it as something like you know this is maybe something we need to do and sit in a circle, have song, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe have some time for that. That's probably a lesson I won't follow up on for years again because of my socialization (laughs) but uh, another thing is I mean it's so my kind of position in environmentalism like or or my kind of uh, the way I came to it and the way I'm oriented in it is not like a wilderness kind of environmentalism right in fact in a a lot of ways I'm, I'm really influenced by environmental justice movements and so you know, sometimes I'm 
I'm a, I'm, I shortchanged the kind of communing with trees or something like that. But being in this space with kind of less machine noise mm-hmm. and with the birds that wake you up and the trees, I mean, it, it, it does make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think that is kind of an embodied practice. And, and, and maybe doing that, you know, maybe one of the things that kind of frustrates me about kind of the romantic view of nature is that it has to be experienced individually and in solitude, mm-hmm. which, again, it's a beautiful thing. It's just sometimes it's overemphasized. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's also something about being in a space like this communally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, I guess one of the things I feel like I learned this week is you know, there's, there's been a, a big emphasis on contemplative practice, which has previously been a big part of my life, um, isn't at the moment. And at one point, we were kind of charged to go out and saunter around. I can't remember exactly what the charge was, but I was just so much in my head that I just needed to move. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, this is one of those lessons I need to learn over and over again, is I think that labor is important. There's a reason why that is one of the central you know, ways that a monk's life is oriented. Yeah. You need to move that body, and that is a holy, prayerful thing. Yeah. And so I... I'm going to go back and get in the garden a little bit more. Mm-hmm. What about you, Sam? <laughs> yeah, um, thank you for asking. Um, I knew you guys were going to do that. <laughs> you know, I, I am part of a part of a community of faith, Keep Until, um, which is you know, which is trying to be a local expression of the thing that we've experienced and, and we've been working on, and generations before us have been working on about how how is it that we bring you know ecological and agricultural practice um, in conversation and into a full and complete life, a, a full praxis um, with our faith. And, you know, it, and it's interesting because right before I came down, I had a conversation with some friends and some leaders about kind of where we're at. And we were reflecting that just because of the way the community has developed and the need as your church planting, you know, to just kind of solve problems, like you never solve all the problems, you never plan for all the problems. And then there's something that happens. And, you know, so in the interest of solving problems, you go back to what you know generally. And we were all kind of reflecting that what we've kind of fallen into, and I don't think it's necessarily a negative thing, but we've fallen into like a very conventional church. That because those are the things that are most immediate, you know, how do we solve this programmatically? I mean, we've got a ton of kids, which is great. So we start a kids program to try to put some structure in place to help those kids feel like they're a part of something. And we've just been reflecting, like, wait a second, is that what we set out to do? And we don't know if we know the, like, we don't really have an answer for that. It's just, it's a good question to ask. Did we set out to just create, I hate to say another church, because our agricultural work does make it unique in some way, um, at least in our area. Um, But is that what we set out to do? And I felt a real call this week with the discussion around contemplative practice that maybe... And I'll invite you to reflect on this. Maybe there is a difference. Like, what is, the, what is the faith component at the heartbeat of what we're doing? Is it church or is it contemplation? And are those two things identical or is that something different? That, and what I mean by that is more like there's an organization or a rite or a thing that we do, which has spiritual elements to it. But maybe we need to think more deeply about how contemplation needs to be at the center of our work. Um, and so this is very fresh. So, I mean, some of our listeners may be like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, and that's fine. <laughs> yeah. 
But that's what I heard this week based on the conversations that we're having as organically, we just try to keep doing life together. And so is, is there an opportunity for us to, to think more carefully about what's at the core of what we do? Because I heard Gary talk about it. I heard Fred talk about it a little bit. I mean, I can't, ima- I can't think of how many times we brought it up in the context of recording pods. Um, you know, and I'm also reflecting a little bit like you, Wilson, that I mean, maybe I have not spent as much time in contemplation as as I hate to say I need to because we all go through seasons and like I, I've become way more comfortable with that. Like I used to feel a lot of guilt that I haven't done X, Y and Z. And I'm like, actually, you know what? It's been a real the last season of my life has been real active, um, but it's probably not sustainable. And so how do I embody that? How do I sort of how do I reconnect with that best part of myself, that part that I think God calls me to? And then how, as a, as a faith leader, um, might I think more deeply about what is more necessary in the work of bringing ag and ecology and spiritual formation um, alongside of each other. So that's kind of where I'm at. It feels more like a cloud than a, a, a direct sort of point of praxis. Um, but I think it's, it, it feels like a movement in the spirit because it feels like something that we need to tackle now. I just the fact that the conversation this week echoed a conversation I just had last week. I'm like, all right, I'm not the smartest dude in the room, but I'm paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, th- I mean, I think they're, they're dancing partners, right? I, they are. They are, yeah. Well, and I, so I, I mean, I, I've, I've for an extended period of time had a hard time getting back into contemplative practice. And, and actually, I've, I signed up to teach a class on mystical theology next year. And like the hopes that somehow that would help me. <laughs> How's that going but, for you? <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> but I, I actually, I used to be really into contemplative practice and mystical theology. And I mean, that, that was in this apophatic theology and all this kind of, kind of convoluted, beautiful, twisted discourse on unsaying the divine and, you know, the cloud of unknowing and the darkness of God and all this stuff. And... At a, at, a, at a certain point, like that, that whole mode of inquiry, like, started to feel less like a system or, an- well, I guess it never felt like a system or answers, but it felt like that there, that there was always like this tug of war between like spiritual practice and like this big metaphysical system. And at some point, that system started feeling more like a poetry. Mm-hmm. And like a poetry that I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Sam. <laughs> the poetry's coming back. I like poetry. Like, no. right, let me be clear with all the listeners. I love poetry. <laughs> so it, it started feeling like a poetics that, that got that got a certain kind of work done, and that um, that then also fit in with with this whole, whole other set of poetics. And, and that's and that's one of the things that I, that, that I think the Psalms are helpful on, right? And the Psalms there there is the darkness of God. There is the silence. There is this kind of deep contemplation. But then there's also the whole range of emotions and all of creation. And so they're all kind of tied in with each other. And so I, so I, and so I guess I have, in, for times in my life, not seen the way in which contemplation is maybe a center or even just a dancing partner with all this other stuff. Because in my mind, there's been like this big should of like, you know, the truly spiritual go off and live in silence in the desert forever, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a really weird story. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. or, I don't know. Yeah. No, it is an <laughs> exceptional story. Like, clearly not all of us are doing that. <laughs> right. Well, I, I would st- 
struck, Sam, in your question was something that you said earlier, Wilson, which was collect the difference between individual contemplation and collective, because that to me is the difference. So I think that I think we've often, or I have often understood when I hear contemplation, I think of it as an individual act. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, no, that's not what the, I'm like, you know, when you do a question of like, keep until it's like, I have this image of all these individuals just doing their own contemplation, which would be good. But I'm like, but no, you have to be a church. Like it's about community and communion and coming together. And I just, I appreciate like the tension in my brain hearing these things and thinking about like maybe part of the, I guess the question that is arising from your questions is what does it look like to do collective contemplation, to support each other in contemplation, to be doing these spiritual practices in a way that are not just the way we've always done church and yeah. that can be can be very consumeristic and very like, let's put on the show or we have to have this, you know, we have to have all the programming. But I do notice in myself this resistance to letting go of the word church because I feel like that's been co-opted to mean this certain thing and I want to like take it back because... Um, because wasn't weren't the desert mothers and fathers when they came together collectively like weren't they a church like I don't know like you know like isn't there something about like coming together to collectively like love God yeah. and love neighbor that we can't do this on our own I guess that's, that's, yeah. this week is like we can't do this on our own we need to do this together um, well there, there's actually this. I'm actually have, have become no, no longer a friend of the de- I'm no longer a fan of the Desert Fathers. So <laughs> oh, I think, Uh-oh. I'm glad you weren't in here an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Our, our revered guest speaker was just telling us that he's that this is Okay, he's dialed into the desert. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean <laughs> Oh we get out of this. Sorry. Well, so <laughs> there is there is a way of of looking at that literature and seeing uh, a historical process whereby the gifts of communal contemplation, of radical community, um, of subversive community, and even of theological reflection are thrown out of the city, sent to the desert mm. to be done individually. Wow. And so the story is in, in kind of second third, fourth century Alexandria. Um, th- this was before there were bishops. Kind of the ancient mode of Christian community then was, was uh, perhaps uh, more like how philosophical schools functioned. Right? And so they were these communities of men and women, oftentimes gathered around a teacher, um, engaging in spiritual exercises, um, and doing all kinds of integrated stuff. Um, and then there's this dispute that arises. So later on, um, kind of in the age of Athanasius and also in the age of uh, trying to figure out the relationship between church and empire, um, where the bishop is seizing power, um, or not seizing power, where a new form of social organization is emerging and centering around the bishop, and the bishop needs to get rid of the authority of the charismatic teacher. Right. And so the charismatic teacher is sent out to the desert. So, so for example, wow. the, the great desert ascetic St. Anthony is, it's a, the, the life of St. Anthony is written by Athanasius, 
who is trying to become, he has all these disputes, the Bishop of Alexandria. And so he writes this piece of literature. I don't know, maybe. Well, St. Anthony exists, but he writes this piece of literature about Antony in which Antony is completely um, subservient to the bishop and very happy to be out in the wilderness. There's this other tradition of letters about St. Anthony where he is speaking in this philosophical language, or speaking in this language of communities of study circles that are more egalitarian. Wow, mind blown. That's in a chapter I've never published in my dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> but you could or should yeah. because that's, well, it, that's so interesting because we've, Desert has come up in a couple of our different interviews, and I think it was Victoria we were talking with who was saying we often, it's often scripture reads desert as this like place of exile and she was saying like what if going out into the wild was actually a place where like what if jesus was actually being fed by the beings you know the creatures in the desert and what if what if desert is a place of of nurture not just a place of like exile and temptation but this like clues me in a little bit to like maybe that's what partially why in our traditions that we think of it as a place of exile is because the desert mothers and fathers were actually exiled to the desert, <laughs> right. right? Like that that was like, get this out of the church, if you will, right? Get this out of the systems, get this out of the place, the like nexus of the spiritual conversation because probably they were saying things that the bishop didn't like, I'm guessing. Like heretical and, and a heretical in the best of way. I mean like, but... Yeah. Well, it's, well, and so another aspect of this, and this comes out, and I mean, a, a really good book on this actually is this guy David Brackey. It's called it's on Athanasius and asceticism or whatever. And he, so he also says that another way in which they keep the women quiet is through keeping it's, it's through putting the virgins together and kind of to the side. Yeah. <laughs> but but so yeah. Also, I mean, I I, I wonder how much. There, there really are, I mean, you all can help me think through this. How much are the, the biblical people going out in the desert, individuals going out, right? Like, I mean, Jesus goes out on his yeah. own, but if we're to imitate Christ, it's not as individuals, it's as the body of Christ, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and, and even when he's out there, he is following, I mean, it's, it's a staging of the people of Israel right. going out into the wilderness. Right, who went out as a people. Who went out as a people. Obviously, in exile, and, and, and I think or this freed, but I mean, there was not. Yeah, there was some threshold that was crossed. And I think this matters because it gets us away from a kind of spiritual heroic, like heroics as an individual. Yes. Back into community, yeah. it changes some of the ideals where we're beating ourselves up for not sitting in silence all the time instead of seeing the ways that silence can change our communities. Like you were. Yeah. Right. yeah. Which I think is kind of was my reaction of like. Oh no! Don't stop gathering together. Oh no no no! Which, and that's which is not what you were yeah, saying. Not but, at all. I, but I'm reflecting on. So like, you mean like that's... how you gather? Right? Yeah, you know, it's 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 church more as a descriptor of of activity, maybe more than its than its deepest meaning. You know, the I, because yeah, anytime. I mean, because we gather around the Eucharist, so it, and we're going to gather there as a community. We're going to engage in prayer. So like that notion of church is yeah. is yeah, that's never gonna. That's never going to stop for us. And I don't think, I mean, for the followers of Jesus, we're never going to stop gathering together. 
Um, but it's more church in a more in a much more sort of conventional or popular sense mm-hmm. of you know this this just kind of Sunday morning thing that we do, which isn't which isn't devoid of meaning, but mm-hmm. at times has perpetuated meanings that are not helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so yeah so it's not and 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 I was reflecting you know thinking about you know well don't give up church and I don't want to give that up nor do I want to give that word up. Um, but I was reminded of one of my favorite quotes of all time is Eugene Peterson. And he's like, and he says that he was talking about pastors, but I think it applies for church too. He's like, when a noun is robust, everybody kind of understands what that means and everybody shares it. And that noun is, is full of meaning and it works. But he says, if a noun is culturally diseased, Hmm. then we need, then we need some kind of modifier for that. And he was talking about how pastor used to have a particular meaning and then it got diseased because we had all these different models for it that were really unhealthy and unhelpful. Um, You know, and I feel as a pastor, I mean, I'm always asking myself about my own vocation and the communities that I'm a part of, you know, when I say church, do we all understand the same thing? And it doesn't mean we can't have a diversity, but is there sort of a fundamental understanding of what that is or is it something fundamentally different? And at times, Church will set off bells of oppression and bigotry, sure. and all the thing and and ecological destruction and all the things that um, that reflect empire. Um, yeah. It can be yeah. uh, they can be the prophets to empire rather than the prophets of the kingdom that is to come. So, so if church means prophet to empire, I am ready to be done with that. Yeah, um, Amen. and I and I'm willing to replace that with contemplation and to, and to to discover what that looks like. But I believe there's a place for the contemplative church, yes. <laughs> and so that's right. that's the hope, um, and that's what I feel like I experience when we're hanging out. There's a sense, and you talked about it, how we digest this information together. This feels like contemplative church, yeah. and it's the kind of worshiping community I think will be necessary in a climate change slash slash an- Anthropocene era that we're already in and entering more fully into. Yeah. Well, I'm curious. I mean, I know it's not grammatically correct, but like. I'm curious how wild and farm and garden are modifiers to the word church and how that does something for us. I mean, think thinking about like, we'll use wild church, for example, because it's not either <laughs> of our like wheelhouses in terms of that some suddenly, I mean, they have a pretty, I mean, every wild church has something different, but many of them are very like liturgically Form. So it's not it's not that they are making up a whole new way of doing liturgy, but the example of an invocation. Like, what if the invocation includes the land and the animals and the plants? Um, what if what would normally be a time for just the sermon, which is some kind of proclamation, is actually being out in the natural world and having that observation and conversation and wisdom? And I just wonder if I wonder if that's one of the things we're kind of like reaching for in these gatherings are those modifiers are those ways that we can say I don't want to throw out people gathering together around the Eucharist around spiritual practice to love God love neighbor be in that covenantal beloved community but yeah there's a lot of and there's a lot of things that are really messed up with church and the, over, over time and really harmful and um I feel like that's part. That's what I'm reaching for is to claim the thing that is is of God that has been throughout generations. To, to claim that I don't want to throw that out, but to 
to make, I don't know if it's to, um, to approach it or to clothe it or to engage it in a way that we can shed some of the structures that have not served and that have excluded. And compartmentalized. Compartmentalized, right. I mean, just go to church to do your spiritual stuff and then go do everything else in the world. And don't, no, bodies are bad. Yeah, no, nature's bad. Yeah. 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 So do you all think that, that these, that, so when church is made wild or when church is taken to a farm, um, do you think that holds the seeds that can be taken back to what people normally call church? Yeah. And, and kind of change that or? I mean, so there's this guy whose name I forget and I don't have it written down. So maybe we'll put it in. I'll splice it in after we remember. Um, Yeah. He talks about heretics and uh, how heretics are actually, and maybe one of you will know who I'm talking about, uh, um, heretics help to lead the direction of the church. And so I kind of have this image of, but, but the whole church doesn't go out there. So I have this image of like, if the church, and I mean that in a really broad sense, is kind of this like big blob (laughs) and the heretics are kind of way out here on the periphery the whole blob is not going to move out to the place where the heretic is because that's just not quite how how culture and how culture shifts work but the whole blob will start to turn and melt like just turn towards that that heretical idea (laughs) um that idea that's taking it outside of what what, how we've been used to. And so that's what I see like farm churches, garden churches, dinner churches doing is not that I don't think every church needs to become a farm garden wild church, but that there's something of wisdom that's happening in the questioning and the exploration in the, in the farm garden wild dinner churches that I think is, is wisdom for the broader church. And and I think it comes back in in praxis, but I also think it comes back in in theological reflection. I think it comes back in in a way that we can think about even what is church. And I get really, mm, I don't know, nervous, grumpy, something when people say like, oh, so you think garden churches are cool. You probably want everything to be garden church. Or like, this is the new cool thing that like, if we all do this, then the church will come back to life. And I'm just like, no, stop. Yes. No, no, All stop. us garden churches are investing in ecclesial monocultures. That's exactly yeah, what we want, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, no, this is not the point. But I do think that, you know, as Keep Until faithfully does church in this way, and as, you know, a dinner church does it in this way, and as a wild church does it in this way, I hope and believe, and I, th- I see it already happening, that it is informing and changing the big blob of church because they're in relationship. Well, and I wonder if one of the things it could do is it, it transforms the church, but then it also maybe decenters it so that yes. the life of discipleship is not synonymous with the church. Preach. So that, you know, there's, there is the gathering of people, but then there is also all kinds of other ways, you know, in your economic life, in your work life, in your home life. That, that all that's lived out. So maybe part of the work is taking the church somewhere else so that we can begin to see 
a bigger, you know, to, mm-hmm. to see a bigger world, but then also to have integration. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, something I was so struck by week after week doing liturgy outdoors in the middle of the city is how the liturgy was in conversation with the city. So, like, we're in the middle of prayers of the people and three fire trucks and a few ambulances run by. And so, obviously, we pray for the people that those are going for and for the helpers that are on those trucks. And I mean, like, and because it's the prayers of the people, right? And the people are there. And that when we have gratitude for the earth beneath our feet, if it's like, actually directly below our feet or the breeze of the Holy Spirit like that I think worshiping outdoors or and worshiping like in different settings actually changes and brings to life the liturgy that we can do indoors and which I think I mean in my experience I am much more tolerant of like the fly that's buzzing around a sanctuary or the kid that's being a little noisy or the, even like the squealing microphone or whatever. Like when I'm worshiping indoors now, I experience the liturgy a little differently because I just assume that all those things should be integrated in <laughs> and that they're part of it. And we're here doing, you know, worship together. And um, so that's just one example of how I, yeah. I see in myself that it's, it's changed me. Also, don't get me started on, yeah, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm reflecting on a question, so if this doesn't go anywhere, we can, we'll hit the edit, edit. button on this, actually. <laughs> but, like, but from my particular context and the way that I understand and talk about seeds for change, like, do I believe that, like, farm church has within it the seeds of change? My, my intuition sitting here is probably not because we're so formed by church culture like it's just owning that like all of us almost all of us who gather around that have either been a part of church or actively part of church who have been a part of church have been hurt by that where i think the seeds are and why we do farm churches i still believe there are seeds around understanding the creator of the universe in those who are farming and so it's not to go out and to take our knowledge out but it's to go out to make our accessible to those who already have that knowledge Mm-hmm. And to say to actually honor the work that they already do, and in my context, in the way that the way that I pray for the people, or the the burden that I have is, is to pray for farmers and pray for young farmers and for old farmers and people who don't know how their farmland is going to be transferred from one generation to the next, and people who have lost farmland. But I believe that there are seeds of spirituality that sit out there that we've forgotten that they hold. And to say that there is a spirituality that doesn't yet reside in the office of pastor or bishop mm-hmm. that are legitimate, that feels subversive to me. Mm-hmm. And that feel like, and, but that feels like a, a step of kenosis for the church to say, I'm emptying myself of all of this and I'm going to go out, not to a wilderness per se, but I'm going to go out to a lived area and hopefully humble myself and make ourselves available to those who have this knowledge. And to acknowledge, to acknowledge that God-given gift, not only the image of God in a farmer, but also to acknowledge the work of God that they do, maybe they're the pastors whose feet we set at. And maybe that is a way that those seeds get kind of transferred back indoors, if you will. You know, that, that actually that's the way, that become almost a conduit to allow that knowledge to re-infiltrate the church and to reinform its life in the way we read our scriptures and the way we celebrate our rights and all that kind of stuff. So 
I don't know. Like, that's a, that's a hypothesis more than I want to stand behind that and I want to advocate for that. But, but, I want to, but I want to follow Jesus in being kenotic. Is that the right word? Like the act, of, the act of engaging in kenosis and emptying and acknowledging that the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the universe and creation are out there. We just got to, we just got, yeah, just to go, so go be where it is. <laughs> like, go be where that wisdom is. And through the process of osmosis, eventually, you know, we learn to walk a little more like Jesus did on this, on this earth. Yeah. That's beautiful. I mean, that, and yeah, and it's, so it's, it's about activating yep. and connecting with that, that wider wisdom. I also think huh. it's an invitation to connect with those people and place that we might not connect with otherwise, right? Oh, like yeah. That, I, that, like, that that's actually, like, the work of it. And I think that's what church wow. in its best form can be, is a place that we connect with those we wouldn't connect otherwise. And yet, yeah. church has become monoculture. Oh, it, it right? absolutely is. And so, like, we've been talking about biodiversity in terms of, like, ecosystems. And I think, I wonder if, like, part of this question is about biodiversity as a church, which is not about being like, we need a person that looks like this and a person that looks like this, and now we have our glossy brochure and we have diversity. And but we need actually, programming and, and we, we need, need a choir. And we, right, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe it's actually about like finding yeah. out like what is the ecosystem we are in and that that like emptying and also that like asking questions and exploring yeah. and, and, and being with. I mean, something that as you were talking, Sam, that I was just remembering is... Um, Another gift of worshiping outdoors in the urban setting that I was in was that I suddenly was connected, I was connected to my unhoused neighbors because they were coming and being part of the community and they were working and worshiping and eating. You know, we were all worked together, but I suddenly noticed the weather in a completely different way because our like I mean our lives are so climate controlled for those of us that live in homes with heating and air conditioning and roofs for like to keep you know rain out and I was just thinking when you say like going out like to the farmers like what's the farmers lived experience like having the physical experience uh, even if it was just for those three or four hours of church time of this is actually how hot it is this is how rainy it is this is how windy it is what do you need if you're being outdoors and you're trying to sleep outdoors in this hucky or this rain or and and that as a church that 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 we were like taking a stand for that like as a church that they're saying like let's go to the place and commit to being there yeah. um, was a kind of like living with in our community that I I hadn't experienced before. And I have certainly had not experienced inside the walls of a church, even churches that, you know, had good homeless ministry programs or like were doing genuinely good work in the community. It was still separate from rather than going and being with. And so then the the traps of church with programming, et cetera, is, is not that that is institutional and structured. It's that it's institutional and structured for a certain kind of end. Right, and so and so, so there's a kind of structure that's that you. All, I mean, so there's still institution structure that's in garden church, that's in farm church. Sure, yeah, we can't escape right. institution. It's just different, and it activates people in a different way, and it cultivates a different kind of power. Yeah. Ooh. Powerful. That's good. Yeah. 
Well, I, I mean, it, it gets me off of my whole rant about liturgical space and how our liturgical spaces shape power dynamics and shape our communities. And, you know, you have the traditional cathedral with the long aisle and very important people and important things are up front and all the other people are back. Or, you know, I mean, there's that, but like, so when we literally take our worship into different spaces, it actually changes it. Like if you're in a barn, you're going to do different, you might still do all the same movements of liturgy, they will not be the same. No, it's not the same. <laughs> and we've done Christmas and we've done Easter in a barn setting. Um, now, admittedly, the Christmas one has a certain <laughs> kitsch to it. I mean, it, we can't help it. But I, I mean, it, you know, it's, but that that Easter service, and we did it on Holy Saturday because I had responsibilities on Easter. But like, but yeah, it was different. Yeah. And I cannot I cannot tell you how it was different. I just know that it was. Yeah. Um, there's something about the straw poking in the rear end and hearing the baby goats who are underneath the barn, like yelling up through the floors, mm. like, um, and to hear the chickens outside. And it was, it was a little warm that particular day, like all of a sudden to feel life on the day that we celebrate resurrection. Mm. Like, yeah. Like, why didn't we, like, I, why didn't we think of this before? <laughs> like, and I'm not trying to say that I'm any kind of a genius. It's just, you enter into that space and you're like, it, it is a fuller revelation of what the Spirit is doing in the world. Right. Like, the call that we have on our life, our vocational call, seems identical to me to the call that those baby goats have to live their life and to produce offspring and to produce milk and to eat, the, eat their pasture and live in community with their, with their humans. And so, like, yeah. that's the Spirit's work. So experience more of the Spirit. Yeah. Just go do it. Right, do Monday, Thursday in the garden, and at the end, like, this ritual of pouring the water out into the garden beds as we read those final, those final words of, like, Jesus in the garden with the disciples. And it's just like, okay. Yeah. Like, that's, that's something. <laughs> that's real. Like, I want to go read the temptation of Jesus story out in the desert, you know? Like, I mean, like there's something about our landscapes that are our place that shapes us. This is reminding me of where we started talking about. Oh, good! Are you going to bring us home? I, I, about yeah. <laughs> well, about, about I mean, we were talking about echo tones as you know, not necessarily unique, but well, unique in some ways in my experience, but as kind of beautifully shaped, right? And and paying attention to place, and being intentional about form, and kind of also getting us outside of comfort zones, but also using some stuff that we're used to. And, and then that's that's what farm church, that's what garden church is mm-hmm. part of what I mean. It's, it's, it's part of the genius of the movement, I guess, is staying in those incarnational, relational, creational spaces. Mm. Like incarnational, relational, creational. Creational is a good modifier. I don't think I've heard that one. That's good. <laughs> that's <beautiful. laughs> the other two are good too. <laughs> but that's like, yeah. That's my life. You just named, like, I think yeah. the core of, of why. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for this conversation. Yeah. Um, we'll let our listeners go take a nap now. <laughs> we'll let our know. hosts go take a nap, too. <laughs> oh, wait. Our listeners maybe have already been taking a nap, but it's our turn to take a nap. Sorry. So um, rewind to the creational part, okay? That was really good. <laughs> yeah, that was, that, was, that was really good. Um, so I don't know how to end this podcast. So. So, Wilson, thanks for making some time. We really appreciate it. It's been great being here with you all. Yeah, thank you. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, we invite you to download the rest of our Ecotones of the Spirit series and to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date on the conversations happening around food, health, and ecological well-being. Thanks for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest University School of Divinity, Plainsong Farm, Garden Church, and The Keep and Till. And the music is by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.